Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Paul Thompson Jr. is today's featured author on this installment of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. Hello, I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and the book I'll be discussing with Paul Thompson today is A Most Stirring and Significant Episode, Religion and the Rise and Fall of Prohibition in Black Atlanta, 1865 through 1887. Paul takes a historical look at the 19th century temperance movement and he studies the interracial relationships involved in that movement. Please listen in. Hi, Paul. Hi, Vershawn. Today we're speaking with Paul Thompson, Jr. He is an associate professor of history at North Greenville University. He was also president of the South Carolina Historical Association. Today, Paul will be discussing his book, A Most Stirring and Significant Episode, Religion and the Rise and Fall of Prohibition in Black Atlanta, 1865 through 1887. His book is published by Northern Illinois University Press this year, 2013. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Would you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am, I think, compared to a lot of, uh, or a fair number of uh, academics or historians, I perhaps have a little different path. But uh, I grew up uh, as an only child uh, in a small town of uh, not even a thousand people, about 30 miles northwest of Manhattan, right on the New York, New Jersey state line. And uh, I... um, my father was a pastor of a small Pentecostal church, and that was sort of my whole life. I didn't have sisters and brothers to fight with, uh, and uh, so uh, or play with. And uh, I went to um, college at uh, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, my my whole goal was to be a high school social studies teacher. And so I um, returned back uh, to the New York City area um, and uh, taught in public schools from 1987 to 19- 2000, and uh, a variety of just sort of professional and personal things led me to uh, resign my high school position, and uh, I was accepted at Emory. Um, I'd earned a master's at Montclair State in New Jersey, Montclair State College at the time, University Now, and uh, I went to Emory University in 2000 and graduated in 2005 with a PhD in American History. Uh, Since then, I've taught um, in South Carolina, one year at Lander University, uh, and since '06, I've been teaching at North Greenville University, and since '09, I've been chairman of the history department there. Very nice. Uh, before we move on, can you tell us a little bit about your years as a high school teacher? What did you like most about it? Um, I I love actually the process of teaching. Um, I love the interaction uh, that you have on the spot, the dynamic of it, just the give and take, the having to think on your feet, uh, the making connections between people and ideas and yourself and students. And I, I just I love that that performative um, sort of on stage feeling of teaching. Um, I had a also um, I had a really um, I taught in a really unique district uh, in that we had significant wealth and poverty in our school, um, a truly diverse school. We were about 60% white, um, and uh, we had um, about 15 to 20% of our population were immigrants. Um, so uh, we had a really nice um, you know, mix of students. Um, I enjoyed that diversity. Um, a lot of – we had really good students, really bright students, um, I guess that's somewhat, you know, we had some of the positive things associated with a stereotypical suburb uh, in, in, you know, in, in some, some of the people that, uh, you know, were sending their kids to our school. Um, we, uh, I had graduates go on, uh, students I taught went on to Yale, Columbia, Cornell, um, you know, I mean, I taught good students, so. 
Mm. And someone might uh, uh, surmise that a part of your interest in writing this book um, is personally influenced, uh, given what you said about your um, growing up in a, in, a, in a religious environment. How did you come to write this book? Uh, yes, it is, uh, it is very personal. I remember when I was, um, well, of course, this is my dissertation revised, and uh, um, it, it, I, I remember early on in my, in my um, Ph.D. work, somebody said, well, you know, really they say people that write dissertations, it's really almost a, a therapeutic act because they're somehow digging deep into their soul and, you know, they have to pick a big enough project they can tolerate for years. And, uh, and so that it, it has to be somewhat cathartic or, or something in that realm of therapy to, to do it. And, you know, really, uh, I remember when I first heard that, I was like, no, nah, that's not true. This ain't a therapy thing. But, you know, really, uh, at the end of the day, a part of it, it, it was that uh, for me, I, I think, at some level. Um, I, um, I was... Uh, it, it, um, alcohol in uh, my father had a big influence in my life, and uh, he, I, I think, just from from I don't know that he ever said it, but just from what he did, he acted as if the substance itself was intrinsically evil, uh, inherently evil, mm-hmm. and uh, and so um, um, I love telling people this story. We went to a wedding when I was about twelve years old, and. Um, uh, at the, um, we had a reception hour and then we had a sit down dinner and in the sit down dinner, um, when we arrived, there were the, the champagne glasses had already been poured at each place. And, um, my father just didn't like the idea of the champagne being that close to him. So he had to pick up the champagne glass to move it farther towards the center of the round table. And uh, the irony was, that as he was doing that, he actually accidentally spilled the champagne all on his shirt sleeve. <laughs> so he ended up smelling like champagne the rest of the day. Um, but, yeah, it was very clear in my household. I just did not drink liquor. I never saw any drop of alcohol um, in my house um, growing up. Um, and um, I went to a college that didn't permit students uh, to drink. Uh, and... Uh, I think uh, I, I come from this from a fairly unique perspective that I'm, I'm, I'm relatively conservative um, by a lot of metrics that could be used to describe conservative. Um, I'm really, I say, right of center um, on a lot of things. Um, but so I say that to say this that I, I, I was um, um, when I had to write my essay for Emory about what would I do my thesis on. I, I pondered, and in the 90s, uh, I, I, um, in the 90s, I had been involved with a um, what's called a pregnancy counseling center, um, and um, I noticed that um, uh, I, between my involvement there, I noticed that you know it wasn't a lot of uh, black churches supporting that uh, organization, and I noticed. Uh, that in a lot of my conversations with black friends, I had begun to notice, and, and this, I know this sounds weird, but in, to a lot of people it would sound weird. Um, but by the 90s, I mean, so I came of age in, in the age of, in the era of Ronald Reagan, um, and um, um, I voted Republican consistently. And uh, by the 90s, it finally occurred to me that basically every black person I knew who was of the same religious persuasion, even broadly conceived, um, they all voted Democratic. And, that, and that, I keep scratching my head, wondering what's going on here. Um, and like, for example, on the abortion issue, I knew they didn't believe in abortions, but yet they were voting for a party that supported abortions. And, and I was a little perplexed by that. And so I just started thinking about that. And so um, when I had done my master's, I had done my master's thesis um, on the sort of the first generation of free blacks in Manhattan and, and some of the, the leaders that came out of um, the free African school there in, in Manhattan and sort of cult community leaders. And so when I sat down to, to put, pull together, you know, think about a thesis um, or my dissertation, um, I, I, I tried to frame it broadly. And, and this is what I, I said. If I want to do a dissertation that somehow brings together issues of race, Issues of religion um, and issues of reform, um, and um, uh, you know, at, at the time I, I perceived or I understood the pro-life movement as a reform movement, 
Um, now I understand that in many ways it wouldn't really meet that definition. I get that. But at the time, I thought of it as a reform movement. So I was trying to figure, you know, you know what. Um, and, and then, um, this, this sounds not terribly, um, well, this sounds very mundane, but once I got, because I, I was an older student in my Ph.D., I started at 35 years of age. Uh, my goal was, um, uh, um, well, to get out as quickly as I could. So I wanted to be pragmatic. And so um, I had actually, in undergrad, I had done a paper on um, the Prohibition Movement. And um, and uh, I really was interested in studying the African-American experience. And I wanted to do something local. And there's all those great archives right there in Atlanta in terms of the historically black colleges there, the Atlanta University Center Library System and their archives. Um, and so um, I thought, well, you know, let me try to pick a topic that will be, uh, you know, geographically, uh, you know, easy, uh, so I don't have to travel all around America to research it. Um, and boy, the last laugh was on me. Um, yes, the <laughs> Atlanta University Center Library is great. Uh, when you go to the back of my book, you'll see that I went to something like, I don't know, 20 archives in like seven states uh, from Massachusetts not, not to Louisiana. Just, uh, not just the back. You mentioned that in the introduction. That it, oh, okay, that right. It's in the introduction. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I got, you know, and then the first couple of places you go, and then the leads sort of turn out, does, you don't end up using stuff. But, yeah, I ended up going far and wide from Atlanta. Um, I still, fortunately, was able to finish. My personal goal was to finish in five years, and I was able to do that. Um, so I guess, you know, the blend of sort of where I was, you know, sort of from an active evangelical citizen, and it was a blend of sort of where I was racially, at the blend of where I was age-wise, just wanted to get through the program, and so I cobbled together this idea of um, of, of looking at uh, blacks and temperance and prohibition in Atlanta. Um, yeah, and in a very um, interesting time period, as you detail in the book, and, and I want to talk about that in just a moment, I want to linger on the surface um just a bit, because the um, illustration on the cover of your book is yeah. extraordinarily interesting. The yeah. um, uh, the cover presents a black man, uh, well dressed, probably a uh, a person that uh, uh, might fall into one of the better classes, quote unquote, that you speak right. of in the book. Right. And um, he's being uh, offered by, uh, obviously, uh, white men who, uh, one, supporting prohibition, one against, um, to to sort of choose sides. Uh, And and in the background is a um, sign of a a tavern or liquor store, something that someplace that sells wine. What strikes me about this image um, is that it it is a it's an image from the time from the time period. Um, and, and, and it's a, it's a sort of, um, for lack of a better, for lack of a better theoretical terms, it's a positive image. I mean, the, the black man, <laughs> better class black man is being courted by whites. Right. And right. I find that really interesting. Can you speak to the illustration and maybe some of the surrounding uh, circumstances? Well, yeah, you know, in many ways, this illustration, um, so the full, this is a, um, 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 uh, well, in many ways, okay, back up, um, the word is escaping me, I wanted to say, um, this, uh, the, the full cartoon is, is in the book, obviously, um, for here is obvious to you, but, but the full cartoon is, is, is in the book. Um, the, the, um, this really gets to the center of, you know, my book climaxes with these two elections in 1885 and 1887, which are countywide elections in Fulton County, Georgia, although, um, uh, Atlanta is the largest single jurisdiction in the county. So, um, the, the bottom line is that these elections turned racial norms on their head. And that's what this picture captures so well. Um, so, uh, so many uh, forces, organizations, individuals, et cetera, et cetera, wanted to portray blacks in only negative terms. Um, you know, basically, you know, 99, percent of the time um, in the 19th century. Um, but what these elections in Atlanta show is that, uh, or, or I, the way these votes, shall we say, just transpired, the way they evolved, the black vote became central. Uh, to both sides, 
And, I mean, there's a lot not said when you read the, the, the contemporary papers, but the reason why the black vote was so central is because the white vote was so split, um, which the papers, the white papers don't really address hardly. The point is the white vote was, was basically split down the middle. And so this black community within white Atlanta, you know, within the greater city of Atlanta that white didn't really know, all of a sudden, when we were, there was going to be this uh, local option election or a plebiscite on whether or not the whole county should go dry, all of a sudden, whites became super interested in black people um, and courted them and faded them and just, I mean, just stumbled all over themselves um, to, to, to get black people to support or to vote, you know, black voters particularly, to, uh, to vote. Uh, the way they wanted, and, and it really, it just turned it really the whole, every racial convention on its head uh, from the 1880s, but conventions that, of course, predate the 1880s and um, exist after the 1880s. Mm-hmm. So your book is divided into two parts. It has seven chapters. Um, can you uh, talk to us about the first part of your book? What what would readers find there? Okay, my, my book attempts to do um, a lot of things, and, and, and I hope readers will find it clear. I feel like I'm speaking to so many different people um, through, through my book, um, both sort of academics and, and, and non-academics. Mm-hmm. The first part of my book is a focus on what I've tried to... Okay, so the first part of my book is, 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 is sort of my, um, is, is my commentary uh, to... Scholars of temperance and prohibition, um, but also American historians who think they know temperance and prohibition, um, and 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 so it's it's very broad. It's, it's it's in no way limited to the black experience. I'm I am trying to uh, uncover, rediscover, reemphasize the religious roots of the temperance movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, well, I mean. It's quite clear that there's a lot of scholarship, um, really, from, as I mentioned in my introduction, basically, if you're to look at the historiography of the temperance movement, from basically from like World War II to 1990, you almost wouldn't know religious people were the driving force of temperance. And if a scholar does recognize that, it's usually in some sort of demeaning way or derogatory roles. They're always finding, they're always second-guessing the, the, the true intentions of these religious individuals. So what I've done is I've come up with a new term that I call the evangelical reform nexus, which mm-hmm. I say is a, is, is a convergence of both religious practice, uh, religious theological thought, and, and, and sort of more secular ideology. And the, 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 the scholarship on, on this, um, a lot of people, you could almost call this um, what we call republicanism. I mean, the scholarship on republicanism is, is so thick, it could just make your head spin, um, But uh, particularly in the early 19th century. But my, my book starts in the early 19th century, and I'm basically arguing that while there are clearly, while I accept that there are many motivations for people pushing for individual temperance, uh, individuals um, you know, personally choosing to not drink or to initially move was for individuals to not drink to excess, and then it became a move of teetotalism, uh, where individuals shouldn't drink at all. Um, but um, whether it's that, or whether it's the political move towards what we call legal suasion prohibition, uh, in any case, there's a lot of motivations for why people are saying and doing what they're doing. Um, what I, I think what I'm trying to argue is that if you remove the religious component as I describe it, the revivalism, the theological evolution of the time, the shift from Calvinism towards Arminianism, uh, or, or really other forms of Pelagianism, but when, if, if, if you remove all of that, there is no way our temperance movement could have looked the way it, it looked. And there's probably no way it could have ever gained the traction that it gained. Um, and so that, that, that's what I'm trying to do in the first chapter. I, I break that out and I talk about these organizations that I then highlight in the, after the first chapter that come to the South after the Civil War. And um, their emphasis is, 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 is in varying degrees in different parts of the South. However, in Atlanta, these are the organizations that really impact the free people. 
Um, so we're talking about the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church, based out of Philadelphia, talking about the American Tract Society out of New York, American Missionary Association out of New York, American Baptist Home Mission Society out of New York, and the National Temperance Society and Publication House out of New York. So all of those, except for the last one, um, were founded before the Civil War. And my argument is that when you look at the leadership, when you look at the documentation, when you look at the mission statements, when you look at their, their uh, serial publications, what you see with all these organizations, that long before the Civil War, uh, temperance was just like what they breathed. It was just normative. I mean, it was like they, they, they couldn't live and talk and act as an organization without talking about temperance. And so that when we find these groups in Atlanta and other parts of the South after the war, talking about temperance to black people, it is not about black people. It is about the actual intrinsic nature of these organizations. Um, so they're just bringing it. So I, I, do little, I do little rips and talk about how they, well, when you look at that they had this big focus in the 1830s, for example, on the settlers in the Mississippi Valley, white settlers, New England settlers, Ohio Valley. Uh, they were all concerned they were going to, you know, maybe in the worst case scenario, revert to some sort of savagery because you know, Christian institutions hadn't been established yet. So uh, you didn't have churches, you didn't have schools, you didn't hardly have a sheriff or police or even local government, you know, in function. And so these groups were very concerned about the morality of these Western settlers. Well, they just refocus or redirect that more that concern about morality to the freed slaves. And part of what I'm trying to say here is that we have to be careful that when we look at the language these northern groups end up using, or we look at the processes they end up using, that we don't call them racist. Because from our 21st century perspective, if you just start looking in the 1870s, they could appear racist. But when you consider the, the sort of the whole life trajectory and evolution of these organizations, you realize that this is this is really beyond race for them. It's really a cultural thing. And so I borrow an old word, um, culturalism. Uh, I don't know that many historians have used a lot of, um, but. Uh, one uh, important story uh, has used this way back in the 60s in a book, and it, it just really captures for me something that is, is really culturally focused, and it transcends race even in the North because the AME Church, which of course is all black, um, buys into a lot of this language and this value system, um, and so they're bringing it. So I study those organizations, and then chapters two and three, I look at the churches and the schools that these uh, organizations found, and I look at how they distribute literature. Um, uh, in Atlanta after the war. And, literature uh, related to the temperance movement, uh, uh, to the various... Yeah, temperance the various... literature, mm -hmm. correct. Right, I just tease out their activities in regards to temperance and what literature, how the temperance message appeared in their literature, how they um, pushed the message through their churches and schools, right. right. And we or should say here... That the temperance, that the way you use the term temperance in the book is an inclusive term, uh, meaning yes. it, it can range the uh, the viewpoints uh, for some people who might be teetotalers all the way to um, anti-prohibitionists. Is, is that right? Um, uh, um, teetotalers to yeah 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 anti-prohibitionists. Um, yeah, so we say personal. Well, yeah, and I and I think it's, yeah. The problem is the word temperance is very. Um, if you look at its usage in, in the scholarship, it, it, it means a whole lot of things, and you look at its contemporaneous usage back then, it means a lot of things. So um, I, I'll say this, that, yeah, so just as a point of clarification, so for these organizations, um, by the time you, you arrive at the 1860s, organizationally, each of these organizations, these northern organizations, um, they are teetotal organizations. So when they use the word temperance, they mean teetotalism, no consumption of any alcohol as a beverage ever under any circumstance. So that's what they mean. Now, where they, these organizations might disagree is like, you know, how or should we implement legal prohibition as opposed to, you know, individually persuading individuals to not drink? At what point do we employ governmental coercion to, to ban the sale? Um, that's where they might they would disagree sort of on the process uh, a little bit. Okay. And not to put too fine a point on the um, topic of race, but the dates are very um 
definitely uh, signal, um, you know, race in the U.S. I mean, your study begins in 1865 and um, and covers pivotal periods um, related to um, uh, African-Americans in the in the United States. Um, and uh, as we move forward in your book, we see that uh, there are groups that you write about that um, saw uh, the black vote as being central to their per- gaining perspective uh, that they were um, advocating. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that, about the constellation of uh, race, U.S.-based racial experiences that are connected to um, uh, temperance? Wow, yeah. Um, well, let me just start from the Atlanta perspective. Um, Atlanta is a um, is um, as a southern city in this time frame, eighteen sixty five to eighteen eighty seven, um, is fairly unique. Uh, I mean, from a sociological and perhaps even anthropological perspective, it's a unique thing because at the time that the Civil War began. Uh, or as, as of the 1860 census of Atlanta. I think there's like 20 or 25 free black people. So what that means is that a city which becomes so phenomenally prominent in, in, in the South after the war, um, at the point the war began, actually had no free blacks with free, you know, so we say self-perpetuating free black institutions. Hmm. So Atlanta was really different from a Richmond, from a Charleston, from a New Orleans, from a Savannah. It, I mean, the, the, the black experience was constituted, you know, just drastically different. So that what we're seeing from 1865 on is we're seeing this, this, this totally new entity. That is, we have thousands of free black people who have in front of them the opportunity to create community. What does that look like? How do you do that? Um, and then given every, you know, force that was against them, which was every force, uh, you know, how do they create community um, out of nothing? Because they didn't have institutions predating. Now, there was a couple of churches, there was a Baptist and a Methodist church that met, uh, but of course under very close oversight uh, from, from the white uh, parishioners and pastors, et cetera, elders. So, um, but there really were no freestanding independent institutions, um, not even mutual aid societies, because there weren't enough people to have them, like mm. so many other southern and northern cities had. So, we're, first of all, we're looking at the creation of a society and how do people constitute themselves uh, institutionally and uh, in relation to each other and then in relation, of course, to the larger society. Um, I mean, that, that, that's, that's one story here. Um, the other story, one of the things I'm trying to do here is and I'm trying to place their experiences and their approaches and their thinking in Atlanta in sort of the broader scope because blacks right. have been talking about abstinence since the 1820s, uh, 18, well, 1790s, they've been talking about intemperance was banned in these various mutual aid societies in the early 1790s when the first mutual aid societies among blacks were created in the Northeast. So we've got from the 1790s, blacks have been talking about uh, you know, we, we can't accept intemperate behavior among our own people. Um, and so I'm trying to put them in that larger framework or that larger arc. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and what, and what I, what I, what I'm arguing, um, uh, in what I do then in the beginning of the second half of my book, uh, the taking ownership chapter. So chapter part two, uh, chapter four and taking ownership, um, I uh, go back and I try to look at, at, at some of the really broad concepts inherent in sort of an in an Africa like we come out of an African worldview or an African cosmology, and uh, and, and these are things that, like the relationship of the individual to the community, um, the relationship um, hierarchical relationships, and and, and how uh, and so so the elements of this along with with, with this uh, syncretic of uh, this uh, just. Uh, an inclination towards syncretism, blending and mixing various ideas on a basis of their practicality or pragmatism, how well they work, how well they function. And so I say what we find, whether you're in 1790s Providence or, or Philadelphia with these mutual aid societies, or whether you're in um, 1880s or 1870s Atlanta, 
at the end of the day, blacks are still being informed, um, however diffused, but this, 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 um, um, this, um, this evolving African-American sort of worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, they're being infused with these ideas passed down by ancestors, and, and they're just adapting them and, and revising them for their time. And, and I think you can see that, um, uh, yeah, wherever the black person, wherever the black community is and whatever time period in the 19th century you're looking at, you can see little hints of these African ideas. And I think for me, that's why chapter four is an enormously um, interesting and, and important, uh, important chapter. Um, and the next three chapters focus on two pivotal years, uh, a yeah. time span that's critical to understanding how um, the temperance movement uh, uh, affected Atlanta or Black Atlanta, if you will. Can you talk, give us a glimpse into that story of those two years and the drastic changes that took place over, over that brief period of time? Yeah. Um, these, uh, it, it, to me, even, this is the most exciting part of my book. Um, I enjoy chapters five and seven the most in my own book. Um, and um, so what happens is, the bottom line, what I argue um, is, despite all of the efforts of black leaders in Atlanta, um, uh, institutional, rhetorical, linguistic, religious, organizational, you know, you take all those efforts combined, I argue that the farther black families or black individuals would be from the influence of these northern created organizations, the farther they are from the influence of those organizations, the less likely they are to hear the message or to even accept the idea of teetotalism. And when you when you add on that the reality of um, what clearly by the 1870s, well, by the 1880s, is clear to blacks themselves uh, in Atlanta that despite the fact, um, and, and this, this surprises I mean, a lot of people that will not study this period or don't know the details like uh, about the origins, the historicity of Jim Crow, right? So Jim Crow doesn't really kick into the 1890s and it's slow and gradual. And it's really not, shall we say, you know, reached its apogee to around 1910. So it's, it's a long 20-year implementation process. It's very uneven throughout the South. So the point is, through the 1870s and even in the 1880s, when Northern troops had been removed, blacks are voting. Blacks are in the political process. And I found it fascinating. I, I, there was one individual I read who said a uh, white Southerner in like 1880. Or 84, he made the comment, well, of course blacks are voting. We just accept that. They're going to be voting. That, that's the new, the new norm in the South. Um, and, um, you know, so that was the mentality in the early 80s um, uh, uh, for, for many whites. And, and a lot, uh, you know, the blacks are voting. So the so blacks are part of the, of the political system. Of course, efforts are made to, to marginalize their vote, but they, but they are uh, certainly in a place like Atlanta, at least, you know, they, they are voting. Um, and their vote matters. I mean, there's enough of them voting for their vote to matter in a place like Atlanta. And, and again, I can't, I'm not speaking to every part of the South, and certainly rural communities are different than urban communities. But um, so what happens is um, uh, there are some changes in the. Uh, so what I try to do in Chapter 5 then um, is I, I look at the uh, development of the um, white. Um, temperance movement. And I trace that in Atlanta. And basically, a new law is passed in 1885. The new law, in Georgia, it's a Georgia law. And it says that every county can have a local option election uh, every two years if it, if it does, if it wants to, you know, if it applies, and there's a petitioning process, whatever, you file a petition. And the whole county can vote whether or not the county can go dry. And so this was signed into law in September of 1885 um, by the governor. And Literally, uh, like the next day, people in Atlanta were planning a Fulton County vote. They were already doing the petitioning, and then they were lining up everything. So that Chapter 5 addresses this election, and in this election, the county um, votes to go dry, as we say. And if you're an anti, uh, well, if you're a pro-he, uh, so I use these words in the book, and these are the words of the newspapers of the day, so just trying to bring the times mm-hmm. uh, into the book. So P-R-O-H-I, a pro-he is for prohibition, and anti is against prohibition. Um, and so the vote goes down like 52% for prohibition, um, and everybody says it's the black vote that makes uh, Fulton dry. 
And uh, that is, um, you know, my best guess is that probably uh, a majority of blacks do vote. Majority of black voters do support prohibition. Um, and then the next chapter, and I started talking about the impact of some of that. The next chapter then talk about the so-called dry years. Technically, no saloon was allowed to close, or no saloon was forced to close. The Latin election was in November of '85. The saloons don't close until July 1 of '86, and so I, my next chapter traces what things were like, what race relations were like um, from '86 on um, 86 to 87, um, basically the uh, uh, antis who were so angry at the election, they try to use court system. The courts didn't stop it. Uh, and then what happened is we get to, um, they said, well, as soon as we can have another vote, we'll have another vote. Mm-hmm. So the antis do a petition drive, and a vote is planned for the fall of 87, um, at which point there is another vote, and the county goes wet. And everybody says contemporaneously that it is a uh, result of the black vote. Um, now, which, let me uh, slow down here for a second, because how could that sure. be? <laughs> <laughs> well, it could only be if the white vote was static and locked in at 50-50, which I think is probably pretty close to the truth. Mm-hmm. But it, you have to just sort of make an educating guess. Because it's the strangest thing when you read the papers. Like, there's hardly any talk about the white vote. Um, but um, really, the white vote was really pretty split. Um, and I know this is um, an interview about my book. But uh, there, there is uh, a book written by a gentleman named Joe Coker, which really uh, helped me. And I feel my books are a compliment. His, his work in a lot of ways. His book is called Liquor in the Land of Lost Cause. And he's looking at white evangelicals in the South in the same period. And his basic argument is that, that there, we have no evidence that the majority of white evangelicals supported prohibition in the 1880s. You, you can't prove that. There's no evidence that the majority supported it. What, what there is plenty of evidence of is that uh, among white evangelicals, there was a tremendous um, you know, uh, argument going on, debate within their community. And so my hunch is their vote was pretty much so 50-50 split. And so it probably was the black vote that swung Fulton County uh, dry and then wet. I mean, but we're, we're just talking about a couple percentage points each way, right? So the first election was 51.5% for prohibition, and the second vote was 56% um, uh, um, uh, yeah, 56% for returning the saloons. So, okay. I mean, I don't call those landslide elections, although I, I've heard, and I know in current political analysis, mm-hmm. someone wins by 53%, mm-hmm. they'll call it a strong mandate. I, I don't I, I don't know. I <laughs> struggle with that. But, um, but clearly, um, I mean, what I do argue then in the last chapter is that clearly the experience under prohibition soured black voters big time. Um, mm. They saw because my argument is that the majority. Okay, the reason why the number of blacks voted dry that did in 1885, they voted dry because not because they were all connected with these northern institutions, but the sort of the, the overarching message of that dry campaign in the fall of '85 was race relations will improve. And there is nothing more bread and butter concern for African Americans living in the South in 1885 than better race relations. Mm-hmm. I mean that you know, and, and and that enough enough I don't say shenanigans, but enough things were contrived and demonstrated and um, enabled to to convince a significant number of voters that race relations would improve. Well, the two years or less than two years of prohibition immediately proved. Um, that race relations were not going to improve. So, mm. uh, so uh, it, I, I think that's what swayed the black vote. So I refer to um, uh, um, opportunistic um, uh, dries, uh, so that they voted dry only for the opportunity to improve race relations because mm-hmm. of pragmatic results uh, versus principled dries who would have been connected with that northern antebellum uh, religious uh, groups. And I think that's a that's a very important point um, to uh, to underscore uh, uh, that that theoretical understanding of of what the possibilities were there. And and when you revisit uh, uh, the prohibition in your in your last chapter, um, you're, you're, what are you trying to get at exactly? Well, 
Um, I, I, you see what I'm okay in my last chapter. Um, I, I'm, I, it's. I feel that most okay. I think probably the best answer for that is a lot of what I say in my afterward. Actually, um, um, it's it, it's 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 where I'm ending the story. Um, I, I think okay. I think the simplest way to put it is this: um, when prohibition as an election uh, fails, uh, the idea is on the ballot. When it fails on the ballot in, in 1887 in Atlanta. Um, that to me is, it's a sea change because what I, what I argue or what I suggest in my afterword, and I, I think all the scholarship, you know, bears this out basically, but after November of 1887, um, every effort, every significant and meaningful effort to get prohibition at any level, whether it be, you know, state, well, it becomes, well, basically, there's almost no more efforts, actually. If you look at the history of, of, of efforts to get prohibition, after 1887, in the whole nation, this is not a southern story, I think this is a national story, you don't see any local efforts for prohibition uh, at the county level or municipal level after 1887. I mean, there may just be a smattering, but if, if, if you could count them compared to what had occurred in this, you know, before 1887, it's just a big sea change. So already in the 80s, there was a big move towards getting prohibition at the state level in the um, north and in the west, in, in, the, in the Great Plains and the northeast um, and, and the Midwest. So out there, you had this movement for state-level prohibition as in state constitutional change. They figured it would be harder to change the Constitution if you get in the Constitution rather than a state law. Um, and so you have a shift away from all local efforts. But... But part of the, but but the, here's the thing: local efforts are fundamentally grassroots democracy. All local efforts for prohibition up to and through 1887 were good old-fashioned, hit the pavement, knock on the door, let me persuade you as a voting citizen in a democratic sense, lowercase d, in the purest sense, mm-hmm. we're going to persuade the masses of a view and get the masses to vote. That's real, just you know, liberal old-fashioned democracy in the classical sense going all the way back to Aristotle, just going to get the masses to vote it in. There's no more effort to persuade the masses of prohibition after 1887, um, especially once you have the Anti-Saloon League founded in 1895, and uh, you get into the first part of the 20th century, it's all backroom deals, it's deal with the elected lawmakers, it's who can we get elected, and let's get the elected officials to do this, and it's no more persuading the masses. It's more really, in my opinion, it's, it's really, well, as the scholarship proves, it's more about working the political system as is. Matter of fact, one scholar has argued the very first um, political action committee, so to speak, the very first lobbying pressure group in Congress was the anti-saloon league. Hmm. And, and so to me, that's a very different movement. I mean, this is the only thing we know today. Every time somebody wants to change something, we go to our lawmakers in D.C., and that's why we have all the, the lobbyists and the millions and millions of dollars pouring into D.C. to persuade them. Nobody tries to persuade the masses anymore. So for me, this is a little bit of an idealistic time that has come to an end. Real democracy, where people are going to go out and persuade one another of an idea and get them to vote and then, in theory, accept the outcome. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit from the book with us, uh, reading a passage or two? Sure. Um, I um, and, and this comes from the, this section, so um, I just want to give um, listeners a little sense of sort of the um, how the, the intensity of this, the passion that was in uh, people um, at this time uh, when they were uh, you know, having these debates over this election. So this is um, this is the days before the first vote in 1885, and the Atlanta Constitution used literally a praise of how the Atlantic Constitution described the disposition of Atlantans on the eve of the election. The weeks of debate were anything but dispassionate. Men of all classes are almost wild on this question, commented one newspaper, while another editor perceived bad blood is brewing. Atlantans were so caught up in the campaign meetings that even theater attendance dropped off to a level where the DeGuide's Opera House operated at a financial loss for four weeks. Uh, on Monday, two days before the election, rival groups of blacks debated prohibition so fiercely that the police dispersed them to prevent, prevent a fight. 
This craze came to a head on election eve, Tuesday, November 24th, as scores of reporters and spectators descended on Atlanta. People even began wagering on the election results. Uh, at the Kimball House, which was the main hotel in Atlanta where all the Dick and Carrie stayed, uh, the odds were three to one in favor of the wet. Um, or the uh, antis. The headquarters at each camp swarmed with people finalizing the night's events and get out the vote effort. Because of expected disturbances at the polls, the entire police force was put on duty. The wets and dries produced dramatic spectacles to rally their troops. From 7 till 10, antis paraded around town by torchlight with several bands and joined spectators in the, quote, wildest enthusiasm. Perhaps as many as 3,000 antis marched, carrying banners depicting empty stores, workers leaving the city, and a mother with a dying child and a doctor unable to administer brandy. Um, the Atlanta Constitution claimed, quote, no such procession has ever been seen in Atlanta as this one, end quote. After their parade, the antis marched off to the West Point Railroad Depot to enjoy a barbecue with plenty of free food and drinks. They danced into the wee hours of the morning. Meanwhile, more than 5,000 mostly black prohibitionists gathered for one last tent rally to hear speeches from Bishop Henry and Turner, John E. Bryant, and Wesley Gaines. More than 1,200 members of the various colored prohibitionist clubs, uh, each with its own band and banners, paraded through the streets to the cheers of onlookers on their way to the tent. Banners proclaimed, no more coal mines, and we can't be bought. For a highly charged crowd, Turner reminded blacks one last time that more was at stake for them in this election than for whites. The Negroes are on trial before the country to see whether they will vote as honest, sober men or whether they can be purchased with money and mean liquor. And cheers and cries of no, no uh, rang out. Uh, reflecting the nascent class divisions within black Atlanta, Turner derided the red badge wearers, wearers as lower class, saying he had not seen even half a dozen of them, quote, decently dressed. And he said, if I were a liquor man in Atlanta and could not get up a better crowd than that, I would quit. And cheers rang up, supposedly from that. Following their rally, black pros uh, went to their various churches to eat, listen to music, and pray all night long. Um, after the election results, um, uh, that in, in 1885, I'm skipping a few pages ahead, um, one of the, the sentences uh, from the press said, Atlanta was torn up from the lowest foundation of her emotions. Um, and several rather uh, almost comical um, uh, confrontations were reported in the papers. So um, one of the big issues was between drinkers who voted for prohibition and those who drinkers who voted for prohibition and those who voted against it. Um, the latter believed that the former had forfeited their right to drink. The day after the vote, um, one individual named Mr. Hughes, who was a wet voter, accused Mr. O'Neill, a dry voter, of drinking, saying that he had no right to do that since he supported prohibition. Hmm. Uh, Hughes threatened and cursed him until O'Neill punched him. Hughes pulled a knife, but O'Neill threw a rock, uh, cutting Hughes badly. The police arrested O'Neill for assault. Um, and then over at Emory College, which Emory was not in Atlanta at the time, um, they went out and did a whole um, parade um, three counties away from Fulton. They organized a celebratory march, and they were pelted with rocks and rotten eggs that they had to flee for their safety. In another case, two men got into a fight because the one did not permit dries on his property. Uh, one prohibitionist, uh, Samuel Blackburn, literally went crazy in all of this. The night after the election, Blackburn began ranting and raving using threatening language towards aunties, and his family, fearing he was losing his mind, called the doctor. The doctor immediately administered morphine, but when its effects wore off, the next day he began chopping down the fence around his house, and his family had him arrested. The judge pronounced Blackburn insane and sent him to a state asylum where he died several months later. Um, and even uh, papers reported that uh, not a few engagements and marriages were broken off on account of the vote. Hmm. So this this really you know hit a visceral <laughs> level um, in in the Atlanta community, just a, a visceral level. And uh, um, and I don't know if we have time. I'd like to read one more paragraph. Sure. Um, um, I, I in in my own writing, I found those passages somewhat comical. And this is even more funny. Um, uh, in in uh, I begin the last chapter talking about the fact that Jefferson Davis so to speak, came out of retirement and wrote an open letter because in 1887, the state of Texas had a vote on prohibition and uh, as well as um, the state of Tennessee. And so he wrote a letter uh, against prohibition. And um, uh, William Pledger was a local black man in Atlanta, I talk about in my book, who had been pro-prohibition, uh, had been for prohibition. But by the second election, 
he was um, he had switched sides, and um, and so he becomes a wit. And, uh, I, and so in the 1887, leading up a couple days before, um, well, no, well, in the middle of the campaign in 87, shortly before the election, William Pledger capitalized on Jefferson Davis's open letters. As a wit, Pledger was excited about Davis's endorsement and not the least bothered by his background, much to the horror of dry black. Pledger announced to a crowd that even though Davis led the government determined to keep his people in shackles, he could still honor him for his, quote, high character purity of life, and great learning, end quote. In the same rally, he and hundreds of other black men lifted three cheers for Jefferson and Davis. Um, and Alonzo Burnett, uh, which was a, a black uh, prohibitionist uh, editor of a, uh, of a newspaper, uh, uh, he wrote, whenever a man's zeal for a cause leads him into the indiscriminate eulogy of patriots and traitors, it is time to abandon that cause. <laughs> if the Negro is not to despise Jeff Davis, pray, whom or what is he to despise? Uh, one can hardly imagine a more jarring scene than a crowd of blacks cheering for Jefferson Davis. The Prohibition campaign has surely created the strangest imaginable bedfellows. <laughs> That is hilarious when you read it. I, I love it. <laughs> Very nice. Can you tell us uh, what you're working on now? Well, um, the, the the first thing most likely to uh, come out is a um, – I'm beginning to examine um, – you know, Georgia had state prohibition beginning January 1st, 1908, and it was the first former Confederate state to go completely dry. And um, – by the time you get to the 1895 to the 1908 time period, all of the uh, rhetoric being used by white prohibitionists becomes heavily racist in a way that it really had not been in the 1880s. And um, so there's a lot of assumptions, you know, about how we're going to control blacks um, in, in, by Southern whites, and, and this is, is, is heavily documented. So what I'm, what I'm doing is working on a piece that I expect to be an article um, that will look at what happens when, it, when the state goes dry and Atlanta is, is theoretically dry. Because what, I've, what we know from the records is that there were several blacks now in Atlanta in between 1908 and 1920, we have national prohibition. Um, there's several blacks that are illegally selling liquor. And um, some of the stories that I'm, the stories that I've uncovered are showing that while whites may have thought prohibition would be a way of controlling blacks, um, from a criminal perspective, uh, bootlegging really empowered black criminals, but it also put them into some very complex relationships with the local law enforcement officers, and so complex that it's not always easy to tell who's controlling who. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for uh, talking to us about your book and for uh, giving us a glimpse into uh, your other research that we can look forward to. Thank you so much. I appreciate this time with you, too. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today about the book, A Most Stirring and Significant Episode, Religion and the Rise and Fall of Prohibition in Black Atlanta, 1865 through 1887, with the author Paul Thompson, Jr., the book, of course, is published by Northern Illinois University Press, 2013. I'm sure that you will find it a fascinating read, so please get your copy today.